0: Now, every family has a set of rhythms, a set of codes that it operates by. It's called a uh, family system or a family culture. So it can be small things or big things. It can be like dad's chair. Nobody sits in dad's chair. You avoid dad's chair because that's his chair, right? Or it can be bigger things about how a family communicates, how they argue, how they uh, discipline children and how they expect others to behave. I remember one time when I was about 22 years old, just graduated college, I was at a friend's wedding, and it was a church kind of similar in size to this, and there were a lot of people there that I didn't know, and in comes this family with a bunch of kids. Now, these kids were going crazy. They were unruly, and they completely went against what my code, my family culture dictated. I just could hear my dad getting onto these kids, and I thought, man, I'm never going to parent that way, huh? There is no one that judges anyone more stricter than someone who does not have kids towards someone who does have kids. And at 22, I had it all figured out. Now, with our fourth kid, I'm like, somebody get me a leash, these kids are insane. Like, I totally, I totally get it. But that's because it bucked against my family culture, it bucked against what I had been raised to think was right, how we should operate by. Family cultures dictate how people handle conflict, Maybe you grew up in a family that spoke openly about your feelings, you shared it freely with one another, or maybe you grew up in a family where you did not share how you felt, you just grit and bared it and you moved on, you didn't speak about it until it all bottled up and busted out in anger later. The point is, every family has a culture or a system in which it operates by, and the same is true for the family of God. There is a gospel culture in which we are to operate by. Now, if you remember last week, you will remember that we are going to take a look through the commands towards one another, and when we follow them rightly, we will see that it creates within our body a gospel culture. Think of it this way. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, what was his response? To love the Lord your God with all of your soul, mind, and strength. But he didn't stop there. The second one was this, to love your neighbor as? That's right. So in one way, at Alpine, we want to create a gospel culture that has good gospel doctrine. We want to love the Lord rightly with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to know the truths about God. But on the flip side, a gospel culture is one that loves our neighbor as ourselves, or as the scriptures will say, that we love our neighbors by our actions, thoughts, our words, our conduct to outdo one another in showing honor, to submit to one another. That is gospel culture. And see, this is a very critical thing because we have these words from Jesus himself that these are not just simply good ideas or best practices, but these are the indicator that sets Christian community apart. Remember what Jesus says? They will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. So quite literally... To take these commands to one another, to be devoted to one another, to outdo one another, to consider others more important than ourselves, flows from a heart that loves God and loves neighbor and is modeled after Jesus himself. So we're going to do this in a few ways this morning. We're going to look at the scripture in James, and this is Jesus' little half-brother. And when we read James, if you've spent any time in James, you know it's a very practical read. You can tell that he has spent a lot of time meditating and thinking and acting out the teachings of Jesus. And so we're going to start in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. And we're going to see gospel culture is created in a few ways in this passage. We're going to see gospel culture towards one another when we strive towards patience, when we work towards prayer, and we bind together in perseverance. Patience, prayer, and perseverance. And then the second thing that we're going to see is that Jesus models perfect patience, consistent prayer, and perfect perseverance displayed towards us. So I'm going to read the passage for us starting in verse 7. It's going to be on our screen. Let's read together. It says this. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not even by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, there is a lot here, multiple sermons that we could probably preach in this one passage. But I want us to start back up at the top in verse 7, where James tells us to be patient. Now, here is one way our church will be marked as having a gospel culture, is our patience towards one another. We live in an increasingly impatient society. Fast food used to be the reference when I was growing up in church about how impatient we are now. I think Amazon might be a better indicator there because one click and in two days I can have something at my door. In big cities, one click and that same day something can be at your door. We are an increasingly growing impatient society. Patience is something we simply don't have patience for. Now, what is interesting about this statement from James? Is that he gives us a command and a timestamp to be patient until the Lord's return. Do you see that? My kids, they have this habit whenever we tell them to clean their room or clean up, especially if we stop them in the middle of their play. Their immediate response is, nah, Dad, how long is it gonna take? As long as it's gonna take you. Just get going. Just clean your room, right? But we don't have this command from the Lord that we just practice a little bit of patience and then we're done with it. No, there's a timestamp with patience that we endure with patience until the Lord's return. Now, the Greek behind this word, patience, is long-suffering. And it comes directly out of a description of God in Exodus chapter 34. If you've read Genesis and Exodus, by the time you get to Exodus chapter 34, this is the very first time in Scripture that God gives this uh, description of himself. This is the very first time that God describes who his character is, and he says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love. Now, if you have the KJV or the NKJV, instead of being translated slow to anger, it's translated long-suffering or patient. What is patience? It is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. And this is what James is getting at. What's the opposite of patience? To be irritable, intolerant or, as James says, to grumble. Don't grumble against one one another. Communities are based on trust and belonging, and trust and belonging can take time. It can take a long time. And community is killed by suspicion, grumbling, intolerance, or differences that are just not settled. One of the primary factors working against a patient spirit is a prideful spirit. Unless you're going to have Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 7, verse 8. It says this Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The opposite of patience in a gospel culture is pride. Now, as we're coming together, uh, two churches into one, there's going to be a lot of things that change. There's going to be a lot of personalities uh, that you have to get used to. People have differences of opinion. They think about things differently. They maybe even interpret portions of Scripture differently than we do. But the call... From James, it's not to argue, it's not to chide, it's not to belittle or demean, and it's not even to grumble against, well, I just can't believe how they have handled this situation. No, the call from James is to be patient, and it's the prideful spirit that's not patient. I have a quote here from Jonathan Edwards that I think distinguishes gospel culture from non-gospel culture. He says this, spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christianity. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. It is the main source of all mischief the devil introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride tends to speak of of another person's sins with bitterness, with laughter and levity in an air of contempt but pure christian humility rather it tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak about them with grief and pity spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others but a humble christian is most guarded about himself he is a suspicious he is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart the proud person is apt to find fault with other believers that they are low in grace and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is apt to esteem others better than himself. One thing that I think that we see in this passage about patience you know, our culture might describe patience as just gritting and bearing it, just moving along, just enduring and going through. But what we see here in this example from James is that patience is not passive. It's not just waiting things to go through. Patience is actually active. And this gets at what Paul, our lesson from Paul in Ephesians last week. Remember, he told us to remember who we were outside of Christ so that we could act with compassion and mercies, mercy to those who are different from us. Let's look back at verse 10, uh, where James gives us these two examples of patience. He says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, there are these two examples of patience in the midst of suffering the prophets and, Job's, and Job. So we know that suffering is not just little slights, it's not just grumbling. We know from Job and the prophets that suffering is real losses, real grief, it's real pain. And if you are familiar with Job or the prophets, you'll know that Job wasn't just stoic. Job just did not sit idly by and just wait for everything to pass by. How did Job respond? He went to the Lord. Where are you, Lord? Job lamented, he questioned, he wrestled with what was happening to him and why. Read Jeremiah. He isn't just saying that everything's fine, I'm just trusting you. They were in real pain and had real questions. But the difference for the prophets is that they never stopped preaching. And for Job, he never stopped praying see, patience is not passive. It's not just waiting for things to go by. It's continually going before the Lord or acting in what the Lord has called you to do. The prophets, in the midst of their suffering, they never stop preaching, and Job never stops praying. Gospel culture, then, James' transition, is not just passive, it's active, but it's also active towards others. A gospel culture of patience is not only towards one another, but it actively brings us to another. Let's read in verse 13. He says, If anyone among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this is so crucial because what James shows us here is that as we gather together as a church, everyone is experiencing something different in life. Some are full of really high joys. Some are in the midst of deep suffering. Some are sick, some are questioning. Not everybody is on the same page all the time. And we have some church cultures that tend to kind of try and blur these lines where everything is up, everything is loud, everything's exciting, everything's happy all of the time. We don't talk about our differences. We don't talk about our struggles. We just sing and then we move on and we go. But James doesn't address it this way. He says, there are some among you who are suffering and there are some among you who are experiencing great joy. Gospel culture towards one another is to come alongside and say, "You are not alone." Just this morning, let's take our church, for example. Our worship the past couple of Sundays, man, it's been excellent, hasn't it? It's been full of joy. The congregation sings well. The band enjoys playing together. Like if you walked in during worship, you would say, "This church is full of joy," right? But within our body, about a month ago, Miss Stephanie Vallee, she's not here this morning, but I know she wouldn't mind me sharing it. She's been diagnosed. She has stage four cancer. She's consulting with her doctors next week to determine treatment and what that's going to look like over the next coming months. But here's, here's what's incredible. is Last week, her husband, Jimmy, and Mr. Verley Hay, he's not here this morning, but Mr. Verley, he is someone that you've, you've got to meet Mr. Verley. Anyway, they were in Sunday school class, and Kevin was teaching that Sunday school class. And Kevin, encouraging Jimmy uh, and Stephanie, said, Jimmy, you need someone to pray with you that has some salt. And Jimmy's like, what do you mean? And Kevin said, it's someone that has, has been there and, and gone through those things. Mr. Verley joined our church about a year ago, uh, his wife had recently passed away. He was homebound with her. He, he had not been in church for a long time. And then at that moment, uh, Jimmy was telling me the story earlier that now Jimmy and Verley, they have connected and they are going to submit to one another in prayer through this. That is gospel culture. That is patience that pushes us to one another. Because we know, we can all confess that prayer is often not easy. I offer one prayer up and, man, I'm ready for a response. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? Prayer takes patience. It takes perseverance. It takes coming alongside one another, someone with a little bit of salt that can say, it's not time to give up yet. Now, when we read these passages in James, James is dealing with a church that is going through persecution and suffering. And James doesn't necessarily tell us why we suffer but he does tell us what to do about it. Now this passage, in its context, and just blurted out, has the potential to be really unhelpful and potentially really troubling for some. What does James say? He says, a prayer offered up in faith will make the sick person well. Okay, that seems like one plus one equals two, right? Like, So if I'm sick or this person's sick, let's go pray together. We have faith enough to pray together and we pray and then nothing happens. So we pray again tomorrow and then nothing happens. We pray for three months and then nothing happens. What is the deal? I remember uh, when Russell was probably four or five, uh, we had a thunder and lightning storm outside the house. And he was in bed, and he comes out in tears, and he says, Daddy, the thunderstorm is scaring me, so I prayed to God, and it hasn't stopped. He's not listening. And then he said, I thought he loved me. It's like, oh, buddy. Now, I can tell you, for that four-year-old, that was a prayer offered up in faith, because, man, he was terrified, and he was ready for that thunderstorm to end. So how do we deal with a passage like this? that seems to not always one plus one equals two, but doesn't just make any sense at all. Because a lot of times, we have come in prayer with a lot of faith, and nothing seems to have happened. Look at the example that James gives us. It's of Elijah. Now, Elijah, James's example of Elijah points out that our faith must always be in accordance With God's promises. Let me say that again. James's example of Elijah points out that our faith must always be in accordance with God's promises. You see, everything Elijah did in First Kings 17 and 19 was in accordance with God's word. God already said it would not rain, and it didn't. And then God said it would rain, and then it did. The beauty is God used Elijah's prayers as a means through which his word was accomplished he used Elijah's prayers as a mean in which God's word was proclaimed. Elijah didn't demand what God was reluctant to do. Rather, he prayed in accordance with God's word, trusting that he would keep his promises. So when praying for the sick, is it that we just need to faith harder and they will live? No. Remember the example of Paul. Paul knows on some occasions he would not be healed. Paul says that he asked God, three times for healing, and never did he receive healing. But rather, what did God say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. That takes a type of patience that a church, a gospel-cultured church, can produce. It takes someone with a little bit of salt that has been through those routines of prayer to come alongside, encourage, remind, and exhort that Christ's Grace is sufficient for us. C.S. Lewis, when, uh, I don't know if it, it was after his wife had passed or during the midst of her failing health, he says this, We have no doubt that the Lord is going to be good to us. We just don't know how much it's going to hurt. Because here's the promise that we see that James says is that the Lord will raise them up. Now, that might mean on this side of eternity or in everlasting with Christ Jesus, but the promise remains the same, that the Lord will raise them up. And don't you just see and love the benefit of the local church, of those who are committed to one another and the benefit that that has. James calls us to persevere, but what do we persevere in? The truth. Now, if you look back at this passage There's one thing that James keeps reminding us of, and it's that the Lord is near. The Lord is standing at the door, and he is full of compassion and mercy. Now, how does that play out? How are we to persevere in that? It's to remind ourselves of that truth, that the Lord is near, he's full of compassion and mercy, and I can trust in his goodness. And this is what a gospel culture church does, is that it reminds each other of these truths. I was reminded of this children's book this past week. Uh, at, over at Alpine Christian School, we had a parent that wanted to come take a tour of the school. And at one point, uh, the mom just breaks down in tears. And she says, I'm sorry. Uh, they, she had just lost uh, her child uh, a few months prior, back in September Seven weeks old, and this book, The Moon is Always Round, uh, it is by an associate professor of Old Testament in Westminster, and he wrote this children's book called The Moon is Always Round. Now, I know Wardville and Alpine, we've both had the practice of doing catechism questions where we'll ask a question and then we'll find a response based in Scripture that is true. And this is what this father did for his son, because at three years old, his son was fascinated with the moon. So each night, they would go out and they would look at the moon. And some nights, it would be a crescent moon. Some nights, it would be a half moon. Some night it would be a full moon. So the catechism question would go like this, what shape is the moon tonight? And he would respond, it's a half moon or a crescent moon. And the second question would be, what shape is it always? Well, the moon is always round. What does that mean, that God is always good even when we can't see it, even only when we see half of it, we know that the moon is always round, God is always good. Now this came to be a very real practice for them a couple of months later because his wife was pregnant with their second child, Lila. And at 37 weeks, Lila passed away in the womb. And so they had to go and deliver the baby and they had a moment where His son was able to hold Lila, and then they had to go home. And on the car ride home, his son is asking his dad, he said, will baby Lila come to see us in a few days? And the dad has to answer no. His son asks, why not? And his dad says, well, you know, because she's with Jesus now. And the son asks, does she like Jesus more than us? And the father says, no, no he says but it's but when you're with Jesus you never want to leave and then the son asked will mommy ever have a baby that wakes up and the dad says i don't know and the son says why and he says i don't know but then he asks what shape is the moon always he says the moon is always round which means what god is always good There are things that are gonna happen within the life of our body that we don't know why they happen. We're not gonna have any good reason for why. We're not gonna make sense of it. There's no one plus one equals two. We're we're gonna pray in faith. We're gonna seek the Lord, and then something just doesn't happen. Maybe you've already experienced that in your life. Maybe you have something that's very heavy on your heart, and when you hear this story, it's tough to wonder if God truly is always good, But here's what James reminds us. It's the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You see, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is with you and for you. Suffering is unbearable if you are not sure that God is with you and for you. And what is James continually reminding us of? That the Lord's return is near. He's full of compassion and mercy. That compassion and mercy is towards you. So now how should we respond to each other with compassion and mercy? And then James says this in verse 16. Therefore, because all of this together, because the Lord's full of compassion and mercy, because the Lord's return is near, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. What is interesting about this passage, what's interesting here is that James doesn't say, go and just pray to God for your sins to be healed and confess those and they'll be forgiven. Does that happen? Absolutely it does. But the the thrust from James is that we go to one another to pray for one another. And this is coming all together in 1 Peter, the priesthood of the believer, that we can intercede for one another and pray for one another to Christ Jesus. This is an incredibly vulnerable place to be, to confess sin. It speaks to the need that we are made to be in the body of Christ. But imagine, just for a moment, a church culture That when it takes its sins to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and it responds in a way that encourages, exhorts, and it honors, it it, it reminds each other that the Lord is full of compassion, that the Lord is full of mercy. What a culture that that church would produce. That we respond with empathy, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. And this is what we are called to do, to meet people with compassion and mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, I think it's in there, uh, he has this quote, the first duty of love is to listen. The first duty of love is to listen. So if we establish this culture of like, we have some deep secret or hidden sin in our lives and we feel the need to confess it and we go towards one another, the first duty of love is to listen. It's not to correct, it's not to preach at, it's not to blame. It's not to blame outside circumstances. It's for that person to be heard and understood and received with warmth and authenticity. You see, Jesus moves towards us in our greatest needs and mess. Jesus, he doesn't freak out. He comes towards us like the leper in Mark 1. You may feel toxic. You may feel utterly shameful. You may feel utterly sinful, but Jesus isn't withdrawing in disgust. He moves towards us in our sin and our mess. And so should it be a church with patience and perseverance and prayer. We move towards one another and respond like Jesus responds in compassion and mercy. We don't freak out. We don't run away. We move towards them. This is the role of patience in a believer, of prayer in a believer, of perseverance in a believer. Now, this morning, I want you to just imagine this just for a second. If your sin was displayed on this screen right now, what would be the response in our heart? Well, it would be utterly terrifying for some. But do you think that in any of this that Jesus regrets getting involved with you? If, if your sin was laid bare, like if, if you have trouble bringing your sin towards Jesus, is it because you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? Do you think Jesus is like, ah, it's just... I messed up on that one. No, it can't be. Because if Jesus regrets getting involved with you, that would make Jesus foolish. And we know that he's not. The answer can't be maybe that he regrets getting involved with you because that would make Jesus weak. The answer can only be no. He doesn't. You're his son. You're his daughter in Christ. And he moves towards you full of compassion In mercy. Romans says this What can separate you from the love of Christ? Is it famine, nakedness, distress, or sword? Notice that word distress. Sometimes our sin causes great distress, great anxiousness, great wondering, but the Lord is not dissuaded from you. What can separate you from the love of Christ? It's not your distress, it's not your anxiety, it's not your anxiousness. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Jesus moves towards us in our greatest need. The Lord is near. He's full of compassion and mercy. So then, how should we respond? We should look to our Savior, Jesus, who models perfect patience. Jesus is patient with those closest to him, the disciples. He's instructing, correcting, and guiding. When children come to him, he doesn't push them away. In fact, he pushes others away that try to keep the children away. He brings the children to him. 1 Peter says, when he is reviled, he does not revile in return. Jesus is the model of perfect patience in the midst of suffering. Jesus, when he's being nailed to the cross, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How much more is this prayer for you in the midst of your sin, interceding for you on our behalf? Jesus models effective prayer. If Jesus frequently left his disciples to be alone in prayer with the Lord, what makes us think we can go through our life not? If Jesus frequently pulls away from the hustle and bustle of life, where there are times where the disciples don't know where Jesus is at because he's spending time alone in prayer with the Lord, what makes us think that we can go through life without? Prayer should be a, we should model our prayer lives after Jesus. Jesus doesn't just model a perfect prayer life. He models a heart for us in his prayer. In our sin, our despair, our sickness, our weariness, all that we are, Jesus draws people to himself. So you can draw Jesus near Jesus in confidence. Confidence. You see, in this life, whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're going through, everything in this life will one day be taken away, except one thing, Everything in this life will be taken away except one thing, and that's God's love for you. Man, isn't that a wonderful thought? Everything will fade away except one thing, God's love for us. And Jesus is the perfect example of perseverance. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him he endured the cross, not for the duty, not for the obligation, but the joy set before him. So they may call many sons and daughters into the family of God. So at Alpine, First Baptist Church, here is our marching orders from James, and I believe a gospel culture from Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's to treat each other with patience. To treat each other with patience. And it's to consider each other more important than ourselves. To model patience as Jesus has modeled his patience towards us. It's to move close to those in prayer, to come alongside each other, find someone with some salt in them, right? Find someone that has been through uh, the toughness of life, that it can encourage us in prayer. And then it's to persevere with one another until the Lord's return. There is no time stamp on patience. It is only until the Lord's return and he makes all things new. I want to conclude by reading Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Uh, this is... Uh, Paul now kind of taking all of this same similar thought on. He says this Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. How can we love one another? Because the perfect one has loved us.